Welcome to Ethos Church, Hillsboro Village. Uh, my name is Gentry, if we've not met yet. Uh, hi, hello. Um, and we are in the middle of a series on prayer. And the series is titled, Prayer. Uh, this is pretty non-creative, uh, very simple, minimalist, if you will, there's a trendy word, uh, title of this series that we're doing on prayer. Uh, And last week, we talked about what is prayer. We asked that question, what is prayer? And we looked at a teaching of Jesus out of Matthew 6 on prayer. And what we kind of walked away with is that at its root, prayer is relational. So Jesus gives us a teaching on prayer in Matthew 6, and then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Really, really, really famous prayer that you probably know some bit of, if not the entire thing, by heart, just somehow magically. Um, In the beginning of that prayer, the opening line is, Our Father in Heaven. And this father-child relationship is where prayer begins for Jesus. But today we're going to take a look at the next line that follows. So where prayer starts with our Father, it's then followed up with, hallowed be your name. This idea of holiness, of hallowing God's name. So today we're going to talk about our posture in prayer, because that's what Jesus is really doing there at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. These two things that honestly kind of seem a little juxtaposed to each other, held in, t- in tandem with one another. So we're going to talk about our posture in prayer. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, I was at a rehearsal dinner uh, for my brother-in-law. Uh, he was getting married, and at the rehearsal dinner, uh, people gave speeches, That's a pretty normal thing that people do at rehearsal dinners, and sometimes these speeches are very structured. It's like, this person, this person, and this person are going to speak, and that's it, and we'll move on with the night. And then other times, there are uh, rehearsal dinners where the speeches are way more open mic, and pretty much anyone can get up and say anything they want about the happy couple. Um, I personally really love those evenings. Um, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, though, but this ended up being one of those more popcorn, open mic style kind of rehearsal dinners. And I remember nothing that anyone said there that night in any of those speeches except for one idea, this one concept that one person said in one speech. And that one thing that I remember was the idea, the, one of the groomsmen got up and he was speaking to the, the groom and he was speaking about the two of them approaching the throne of God together in prayer. And that's what we're going to talk about today, our posture as we approach the throne of God in prayer. I heard that phrase from him, and at the time I was like, what is this dude even talking about, like approaching the throne of God? Like, can you do that? Is that allowed? Can I do that? Actually, like, can I approach the throne of God? So that's where we're going today, and we're going to take a really big picture. We're going to zoom out, and we're going to go Genesis to Revelation. We're covering a lot of ground today, so buckle up, giving you a heads up ahead of time. But I've got a lot of visuals that will be up here and slides and stuff to help you guys track along as we move forward. And we're going to kind of look through, go through four different movements. We're going to make four stops along the way. We're going to first stop in Genesis at the very beginning, and we're going to talk about intended union and separation. And then from there, we're going to jump forward a little bit to Moses in the book of Exodus, 
and talk about the representation through the priestly order. And then we're going to fast forward a good bit to the New Testament and talk about this new high priest that comes on the scene before we finally kind of take all this stuff that's going to be way up here and try try to bring it down into this room here at the Ruby in 2022 and talk about our place in Christ. Sound like a plan? Yeah? Cool. All right. So to start at the beginning, let's start at the beginning. So Genesis chapter 1. God creates heavens, the heavens and the earth. He creates the sky and the seas and the lands, and he populates each of those places. He gives us the sun, the moon, the stars, the birds, the fish, the plants, and the animals, and his crowning achievement within that creation, us, humanity. And he does all of this in six days, and on the seventh day, God rests. And no matter what you believe about the physical claims of Genesis 1, whether you know, it's a literal six-day cycle that happened, if you view it as more symbolic, a lot of scholars are kind of saying, you know, whatever you think physically uh, about Genesis 1, there's something above that, metaphysically, that is being claimed in the opening pages of the Bible. And that metaphysical claim is that creation It is God's cosmic temple. They see in Genesis 1, God creating creation as this cosmic temple that on the seventh day when he rests, he inhabits and he fills all of creation with his presence. Then we get Genesis 2. Genesis 2, uh, we kind of go from this really big all of creation camera view and we zoom down and focus down in on the land. And in Genesis 2, we begin to get this kind of map layout of the structure of the land, or at least part of the land. In Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed... And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst or in the middle of the garden in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So here in Genesis 2, it's kind of, if you really sit down and look at it, we're given this map of the topography of the land a little bit, right? We're given these blueprints that we've got the land, all of the land, which God created and is part of his cosmic temple. But then stepping into the east, there is a particular region in the land called Eden, which is this Hebrew word that actually literally means delight. So we've got this land of delight in the east. And then within that land, God plants a garden. And he plants a garden, and he takes the man whom he had created, and he places him there in the garden, in the land of delight, where they would dwell together. And in the center of this garden is the tree of life, this kind of symbol of the presence of God. And this is a pretty uh, important kind of structure, so hold this structure in mind as we move forward. But after Genesis 2, we've got the garden land of delight where God and man dwell together. Unfortunately, this ideal reality, if you know the story, doesn't last too, too long. On the very next page in Genesis chapter 3, it all goes downhill. 
Adam and Eve, they decide to not trust the Lord's instruction. He gave them one instruction and they decide to define good and evil for themselves as they partake of the tree that God had asked them not to. And because of this, because Adam and Eve have said, hey, you know, I'm going to trust myself instead of you, God, a wedge has been driven between God and humanity, between God and Adam and Eve. And this is a wedge that we all drive between us and God every day, right? Like guilty as charged. Every day we choose for ourselves to define what is good over listening and trusting to God. And this brings separation between us in this intended union with us in the presence of God. And this is, uh, and so then Adam and Eve are exiled out of the garden. They're taken out of the garden because they can no longer dwell completely in union because of that wedge that has been driven between them. And at the very end of chapter three, the very last verse, it says this. It says, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, a quick note on the cherubim. He sets these cherubim up to guard the way back in. And a quick note on that, uh, cherubim in the Bible are not little winged babies uh, that are naked and flying around. That wouldn't be too intimidating to guard, you know, a really holy, sacred space. So let's, uh, the prophet Ezekiel actually gives us a really great picture, really in-depth description of what these cherubim look like. So if you want to, I'm going to read kind of... a description of these beings over you guys. If you want to close your eyes, if that's helpful, to imagine what it is that God places outside the garden to guard the way in to his presence. And the cherubim, this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each of them had four faces and four wings. And their legs were straight, but the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, And they sparkled like burnished bronze, and under their wings, each wing, they had hands like human hands. And each of them had a human face, but they also had the face of a lion on the right side, an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle. And two of their forewings, two of them were spread out, and two of them covered their bodies. And they had an appearance like burning coals of fire, an appearance of torches moving to and fro, and the fire was bright and fire went forth in lightning, and they appeared as flashes of lightning. So this is a very, this is a very different picture than naked flying babies, right? Like this is way scarier, way more fearsome, would probably make you like run away if you encountered a being like this, or at least bow down and be like, I don't know what's going on right now, right? So this, these are the creatures that God places as guards, guarding the way back in to the garden. And then we're going to, so fast forward, movement one, intended union, separation. Movement two, union through the priestly order. So God being good and rich in mercy, he, des- he designed creation for that intended union, right? He designed creation for the garden. And so he sets in motion a restoration plan to bring us back into that intended union with him. He sets in plan this motion through these people called the Israelites. And later on in the story, in the book of Exodus, we meet this guy named Moses, 
who God instructs to lead the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt, and they make a trip to a place called Mount Sinai. And here on Mount Sinai, uh, here on Mount Sinai, the presence of God descends down in the form of a thundering storm cloud onto the top of this mountain, Mount Sinai. And God, Moses goes up to meet God there. And there in the presence of God, Moses receives some instruction for some things. God tells Moses like, hey, I want you to craft something for me. I want you to create something and put it in your camp. And I'm gonna show you a pattern to pattern this structure after, the structure of the tabernacle. So God gives him this three-tiered structure blueprint for the tabernacle where that if you pay attention, it actually very closely resembles the same three-tiered structure of sacred space from Genesis 2 with the garden and Eden and the tree of life and all of that. So God tells Moses, he's like, hey, in the middle of your camp, I want you to build this tabernacle. And it's gonna have this three-tiered structure. It's gonna have an outer courtyard. And this is where there's gonna be an altar. And this is where the priests are gonna like interact with Israel on God's behalf. And then within the courtyard, there's gonna be an actual enclosed structure, which is the actual tabernacle itself. And as you enter into the tabernacle, there's this space called the holy place where you're moving closer in to the presence of God. And this is where the altar or the yeah, altar of incense is, the bread of the presence, and the golden lampstand. But then going further in, there's a curtain that guards the way into the center of the space where the holy of holies is, the most holy place. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was to dwell, which once this tabernacle is created, once it is built, and once it is cleansed and consecrated, the presence of God is actually going to descend down from the mountain and dwell among the people that he had chosen, Israel. And that's not only the structure, that three-tiered structure is not the only thing that's calling back to Genesis about the tabernacle. Within all of the artistry and imagery, there is all this garden imagery calling back to the garden as well of trees and fruit and flowers, things of abundance and calling us back to the garden. And even beyond that, it doesn't stop there each way into another layer further in. So into the courtyard, into the tabernacle, and into the Holy of Holies, there were these curtains. And these curtains had artwork on them of these cherubim guarding the way in to each layer closer to the presence of God. It was this, heaven, or this earthly representation of a heavenly reality where these cherubim were standing guard of the presence of God saying, hey, do not enter here lightly. And God also gives the instruction to Moses for the priestly order. These people who would intercede on Israel's behalf before God and would mediate between God and Israel. And there was one guy called the high priest who was able to go into the Holy of Holies. So only one guy out of the entire nation of Israel was allowed to go into that most holy place. And even then, only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, where he would go in and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed lamb to atone for the sins of the nation. 
So God, he gives these blueprints calling back to Genesis 1, and he comes and descends down and dwells among his people in the tabernacle and through the priestly order. So that's movement two. Movement three, we skip forward a little bit. This structure stays in place for a long time. They eventually build a temple. That temple gets destroyed. They build another temple, but it has the same structure and honestly, even more garden imagery calling back to Genesis. But in the New Testament, the New Testament authors also pick up on this theme, on these images, and they carry them forward in their own way. In the opening pages of the Gospel of John, he makes some really bold claims about who this person of Jesus was who had come and had created such a ruckus within the Israelite community in the first century. And John, in the opening statements of his Gospel, he says this, John chapter 1, verse 1, "'In the beginning was the Word,' that's Jesus, "'and the Word was with God, and the Word was God.'" He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So John is saying, hey guys, you know that guy Jesus? Not only was he a prophet, but I'm telling you that he is the creator God from Genesis 1, the one who created the garden, the one who created us to dwell in unity with him. This is that God who has come. And he takes this claim even further in verse 14, when he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This is a fascinating sentence. Um, And there's two words, two kind of key words to look at here. The first one being dwelt. That word in the Greek for dwelt is more literally, and he made a tabernacle among us. He tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. So John here is literally saying, hey, Jesus, not only is he God, he is God who came. He's the same God of Exodus 40, who descended from the mountain in a cloud and dwelt among his people. This is that same God who has descended from the heavens in the form of a man to dwell among his people, and we have seen his glory. And, the, and this continues to get developed throughout the Gospels. The gospel, of, the gospel of Mark picks up on this imagery of the temple and the tabernacle, the priestly order in the garden. In Mark chapter 9, we're given this story where Jesus takes three of his disciples, and there's this little tidbit at the beginning of the story where after six days, so on the seventh day, Jesus takes three of his friends and they go up on a mountain. And while they're up there, Jesus is transformed before them. He, his, brilliant, his appearance becomes brilliant and radiant. His clothes are bleached whiter than you could ever bleach a pair of clothes here on earth. And not only that, with him, two other men appear with him, Moses and Elijah, to other men who had mountaintop experiences with the glory of God. And not to take it one step further, Mark then says, and then they were enshrouded in a cloud and they heard a voice from heaven say, this is my son about Jesus. So here, and Peter freaks out. He's like, Lord, it is good that we are here. Would you like us to make three tents? 
And there's a couple different interpretations, like debate on interpretation here. Some people, like more traditionally, it's like we're seeing Peter saying, God, it is good that we are here. Let's, you know, let's set up camp. Let's hang out here as long as you'd like. Uh, let's just hang out in your presence. This is awesome, which I'm sure there's a degree of truth to that. But another thing that people see here is that he's making three, he's offering to make three tents. And there's only three, even though there's six people up there, three tents. And some people see that Mark, or that Peter is asking, Lord, would you like us to make three tabernacles for you, Moses, and Elijah to be the high priests of on our behalf? So here, Jesus in Mark chapter 9 is being painted as the high priest of Israel. And then finally, this continues to get built upon at the end of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 15. Jesus, he's hanging on a cross. And as he draws his last breath, as he's hanging on a tree, he draws his last breath in the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem, that curtain, that thick veil that stood between the most holy place and the holy place, that had the cherubim on it, set as sentries and guards, guarding the way into God's presence. That veil is torn as Jesus draws his last breath. On the cross, the veil was torn and the cherubim were relieved of their duties because Jesus has opened the way back up to the Father's presence. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, guys, this is, this is crazy. That Jesus on the cross, as he died on a tree, come on, he on a tree died the veil is torn, the presence is open. This is an earthly representation of a heavenly reality where the way back to the Father, that intended union is open once again through Jesus. So that's movement three, part four. We're gonna take all this stuff and try and bring it down into this room for 2022 and relate it to prayer and our prayer lives. Um, so through Jesus, this continues to get picked up on by the authors of the New Testament. Specifically, if you want to go read the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews loves this idea and this imagery, and he really harps on it. I'm going to run through a few passages in Hebrews really quickly. So Hebrews chapter 4, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. So let us then draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Through Jesus, this new high priest, we may with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Are you kidding me? Guys, this is crazy. This is not chill. And he continues and goes on. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The author here is saying, hey, the, the temple, the tabernacle was always just a representation of a heavenly reality. It was a blueprint that God gave Moses, patterned after a heavenly reality. And that the true tent, the Lord's temple, his 
glory in heaven, there is this heavenly courtroom that we may draw into now through the person Jesus. He continues on Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author of Hebrews is saying, hey guys, we've all driven a wedge between us and God. We've all separated ourselves. We all have done something where we, the intended union isn't working the way that God designed it to. But through Jesus, we may draw near as we have been sprinkled clean with blood and pure water. This is so not chill. This should inspire awe and reverence for us that God, our Father, who's also a king, an almighty creator God who created everything that you see, who's powerful, who has this heavenly throne room, this heavenly courtroom, has invited us in to that place because of Jesus. On, Je- because on, our, Jesus on our behalf, has imputed his righteousness so that we may approach the throne of grace with confidence. I'm reminded... Uh, of Revelation 4. If you want to get a picture of what this heavenly throne room looks like, Revelation chapter 4, we get a pretty good description from the Apostle John. Revelation 4 verse 2, I invite you guys again to just close your eyes and picture this as I, as I read. But at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And the throne, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth a creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, day and night, they never ceased to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We, through Jesus, have an invitation to step into a place like that, that when you pray, you go before this God, you enter this courtroom and kneel before the throne of an almighty God. Guys, this is insane. I'm reminded of uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. As Peter and Susan and Lucy are talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver in kind of the beginning of the book when they first come into Narnia, and they're talking about this guy, this creature, this lion, Aslan, 
who is a Christ figure in the book. He's Jesus in the story. And they're talking about him. And Mr. Beaver says something to the effect of, Mrs. Beaver says something to the effect of, if anyone is able to come before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either the bravest person there ever was, or they are just silly. And so Susan or Lucy, I forget which one, they say, well, is he, is he dangerous then? And Mr. Beaver says, have you been listening? Or of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. I think C.S. Lewis beautifully paints the picture of what in the scriptures is commonly referred to as the fear of the Lord. In our teaching team meeting on Thursday, I was with Joshua and Luke, and we were talking through this teaching a little bit. And Josh, he said something really potent that I didn't like point out in the moment, but we were talking about this, and Luke asked some question, and Josh said, without reverence, there can be no intimacy. There can be no relationship without proper reverence for God. And I think this is what C.S. Lewis is pointing out. I think this is a theme and a through line of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That knowledge begins with reverence for God. And knowledge in the Hebrew thought, by the way, is very different than us. It's not just knowing facts. It's not just knowing, you know, God is this, 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 this. It's not knowing about God. It's knowing God. Knowledge in Hebrew thought is experiential. So reverence, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of knowing God. If you want to get intimate with God... Reverence is the posture that we need to begin with as we step in to prayer. Through this series I mentioned last week, we're going to give several prayer practices for you guys to practice throughout the week on your own, as well as practices that we do here kind of in the end of our time of worship. So this week, for our practice, last week we said, you know, find your prayer closet, find your inner room, a place to go and meet with your Father. And this week, as you go into those places, the practice is simply to begin your prayer time by pausing and posturing your heart towards this holy king. We pause to slow yourself down and enter into the courts of your heavenly father, who is a holy king, almighty God, and creator of the universe, in order to posture our hearts in reverence towards him in order to know him better. So that's our practice for this week as you go out to begin by just pausing. And this week, for our communion time, uh, we're going to go through some similar exercises here. We're going to do an exercise quickly in imaginative prayer and then in praying scripture. So um, imaginative prayer is an exercise where you, you read scripture or you have read scripture read over you, and you imagine yourself in that place. And you pay attention to what you see and hear and how you feel and experience that place through your imagination, which God gave you as a tool in interaction with him. So in a minute, I'm going to read Revelation 4 
over us again, that heavenly throne room, and just place yourself there, and I'll give us a few moments to uh, just linger there in that courtroom before the throne of grace. And then we're gonna pray scripture, and we're gonna pray the words of those living creatures, and then also the prayer of the elders that follows soon after together. Pray it one to three times alone. It's gonna be, yeah, it's up there on the screen. You can pray it one to three times, but then allow these words to become your own. Pray them in your own words. Let them inspire your own prayer to God out of these words, and then we'll circle back together for communion. But first, I'll go ahead and read Revelation 4 over us for our imaginative prayer. Make yourself comfortable. Close your eyes if that's helpful to you. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created." Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Take a few more moments and just meditate on that prayer. Pray it back, pray it in your own words.